Easter becomes the perfect picture of the transformation from despondency to absolute exaltation or exhilaration. That morning starts off just about as depressing as it possibly can get. The ladies that had supported Jesus' ministry leave their homes and they go to the place where Jesus' body had been laid to rest. They go basically to do a graveside service. And you can imagine what it was like for them walking in those early dawn hours, headed to the graveside to do the things that are according to their customs, their rituals. Because we can grasp that, we can understand that, because most of us have been there. Most of us have had to go to the graveside of somebody we loved. We've had to stand and look at a casket or look at an urn, and in the process of doing that, go through the motions the prayers, the scripture reading, the conversations, the memories, all the while knowing this person is no longer with us. Of course, the biggest distinction between our grief and their grief was they had put the hope of all eternity in Jesus, and he was gone. They, they, they believed everything they wanted in life, everything that they had ever experienced, they believed was going to be found in Jesus. And now Jesus had literally let them down. He's 33 years old. He's only been in ministry for three years. And he's dead. He's gone. They saw him executed Friday night. And they're headed to the grave fully, absolutely convinced that he's dead. Their hope is dead. Their sense of life is dead. Their sense of a future is dead. Their aspirations, their productivity, every part of their life is now non-existent and they're on their way to say goodbye. I don't know that any of us can even begin to grasp what a despondent, difficult, depressing, distressing moment that must have been. In fact, our students read from all four Gospels, all four historical accounts of the resurrection. I'm focusing primarily on Luke chapter 24, the first 12 verses. And in Luke chapter 24, Luke three different times essentially diagnoses their emotional state of being. As the ladies get to the tomb and they find the stone rolled away, a huge, large cylinder of a stone that had been rolled into a groove, sealed, literally physically impossible. It's unclear to us what they thought they were going to do when they got there. Those three or four ladies aren't going to move that stone, but they had some anticipation they would be able to perform the rituals of their custom at the time of death, basically process the embalming process according to their culture. And they get there and the stone's been moved. They haven't even gone in yet. And Luke diagnoses that Dr. Luke, he says they were perplexed. He, he describes them as having no clear understanding of that moment. No clear comprehension of what's going on in that moment. The reality is that could describe most of our days. 
I mean, I know everybody's referred to it. We've referred to it in songs. We've referred to it in, in, in videos and in movies and in commercials and in conversations. And, and yes, even as a pastor, repeatedly I've referred to the difficulties of this past year. Because the vast majority, if not every single one of us, if we hold anything in common this morning, it has been a sense of perplexity. We don't understand. We can't make sense of things. And, and circumstances are out of our control. And we feel out of control. It has been a difficult year for us in every way imaginable. And then you, complex, you, you just make that more complex with all of the different issues that we would normally have faced. We've lost loved ones in the midst of a pandemic. We've lost business in the midst of a pandemic. We've lost economic security. And you take just the, the global aspect of the pandemic and it's perplexing enough, but then take on all the individual things we've experienced as well. School wasn't any easier this year by any stretch of the imagination. Work hasn't been any easier. Family hasn't been any easier. As a matter of fact, if anything, my impression and the statistics I read and I get would indicate that almost every complex area of our life exponentially increased this past year. So it's, it's safe to assume, like those ladies, we are a pretty hurting, sorrowful, grieving group of people. The next emotion that Dr. Luke prescribes or diagnoses is that they were terrified. Because in the midst of their perplexity, suddenly, there are angels in the picture. And the accounts are different of the angels. Sometimes there's two, sometimes there's one. Sometimes they're, they're in, in, in bright, glowing raiment. Sometimes they look like a gardener. I mean, can you, you know, before you get thinking, oh, the Bible's inaccurate because the accounts of the resurrection have different appearances and different, different descriptions. Well, how many of you saw an angel this past week and could accurately tell me what he or she looked like? I mean, let's face it, these people were not in the best frame of mind. And so, of course, we got four different accounts, and of course, all four different accounts are going to sound slightly different. In the Luke account, there are two of them. And they look to those ladies. And I've never met an angel, to my knowledge, but I've read the biblical descriptions. And I have nothing but a sense of appreciation for when Luke says, in that moment, those ladies were terrified, fearful, frightened, afraid. And most of us can identify with that as well. How many experiences have we had throughout our lifetimes? How many, how many moments have we experienced when life itself, not just the appearance of something supernatural, but life itself was terrifying? I mean, we were, we were reflecting. It's such, a, you know, it's such an amazing difference this Easter from last Easter because for most of us, last Easter was non-existent because we had been convinced that fear ruled the day. And fear did rule the day because fear was doing a great job at promoting and making normally abnormal, somewhat substantive, lack of substantive businesses prosperous. 
Fear was a great commodity for the mainstream media this past year. Fear was an excellent area of productivity for politicians this past year. Fear was a great way to convince your workers to do things and work longer hours and longer days remotely from home where supposedly it was supposed to be easier. If anybody worked from home and it was easier, please let me know because it wasn't for us on our staff and I haven't met anybody yet that says working at home is a breeze. I managed to squeeze my day from nine hours a day into 15. There was a lot of fear. And again, that's just the abnormal nature. That doesn't include all the other things. It doesn't include your husband waking up, choking and difficult, extreme difficulty breathing and ending up calling an ambulance and ending up at a hospital and ending up at a funeral home. That doesn't include the normal fears of every day. That doesn't include the fears of being bullied at school or being, being, being picked on at school or having difficulties or facing unemployment and the fears of that. How do you provide for your family? How do we provide for the future? I have plans to do this and those plans aren't possible now. You pick up a second or a third job. I mean, we, we always have fear in our lives. It just, again, exponentially increased. We can sympathize with those ladies. We know what it is to be despondent. We know what it is to be fearful. But we also know what the transformation looks like. Luke says of Peter and the other disciples, when they heard what the ladies had to say about that Easter morning, it seemed like absolute nonsense to them. I'm tempted to say something sort of chauvinistic at this point, but we'll avoid that first thing on Easter morning. It just seemed like nonsense to them. I mean, they had watched. They had seen the same things, mostly from a distance. They weren't quite as close as the ladies were because the ladies were a little more intuitive to what was taking place at the execution of Jesus. But they saw him die. They saw him taken down. They saw, they saw him taken away. They, they saw him placed in that tomb. They, they knew what was going on. They saw the guards. They, they saw the, the, the patrols that were out to squash this rebellion that this, this Nazareth teacher was going to create. They, they saw that. They had bolted their doors and they had barred their windows and they had prepared for the worst. And now these ladies are saying, he's not there. And they're saying, he's alive. He has risen. The tomb's empty. And it sounds like nonsense. I'll be honest, when I first heard about Easter, it sounded like nonsense to me. I've never experienced resurrection. I, I don't know what it means to raise from the grave. I don't know what it means to defeat death. It sounds like nonsense. It, it, it is a great feeling for us when we gather here, but the reality is most of what we're celebrating today here in this pavilion, here on our beautiful property, most of it to our co-workers and to our friends sounds like nonsense. And Luke says they were amazed. Somewhere between nonsense and maybe the, the reminiscent memory of Jesus saying something about on the third day, I will rise. But what I really love about the Luke passage is the actual statement of the angels. Why do you look for the living among the dead? 
Why do you look for the living among the dead? Just say it over for just a second. Why do you look for the living among the dead? I was tempted to ask Josh to sing this morning that country western song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. I was in three cemeteries this week. I know that sounds weird. I don't hang out there. I don't go there for pleasure. It's a job responsibility. I was in three different cemeteries this week. It wasn't necessarily fun. It wasn't necessarily enjoyable. We did have a little bit better weather this week, so that was nice. But if you told me, if you said, hey, Pastor, this weekend, do something exciting. Do something that's alive. Do something that's energetic. Even though I was in three different cemeteries this week, I would not have gone to any of them. You don't look for the living amongst the dead. But in reality, we do. We, we, we hope philosophy is going to help us. We hope education is going to help us. We hope work is going to help us. We hope, we hope material things will help us and we'll have security. We're looking for the living amongst the dead every day of our lives. And it's not that any of that's bad. It's not that we shouldn't study. It's not that we shouldn't work. It's not that we shouldn't accumulate wealth. None of that's wrong. But none of that ultimately brings life. Think about that question this Easter. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Where are you going to find life? Where am I going to find life? When's life going to take place? I went through the same emotional process as most of you did. When I was a kid growing up, I couldn't wait to get out. And I was convinced as soon as I got out, I was going to be happy. And then I got out and found out, no, I was just poor and hungry. And so I went back. I'll never forget my father-in-law actually saying to me not too long after we got married, he said, if I had known you were going to bring my daughter home this much, I would have let you get married a lot earlier. (laughs) Because as long as she lived at her parents' house, all I could think of was getting her someplace else. And then we were married. She was in my house and our cupboards are empty and our refrigerator is empty. And suddenly all I'm thinking is it's Friday night. Let's go to your folks. They've got food. And, he, and I just remember him looking. I remember Bruce looking at me and saying, look, I, I should have let you marry her a lot sooner. I would have seen a lot more over the last three years. <laughs> yeah. And the whole time I was in college, I thought as soon as I get out of school, I'm going to make money and life's going to happen. Even after I became a Christian, I'm like, okay, as soon as I finish seminary, I can start ministering. As soon as I get my degree, as soon as I put it up with that certificate on the wall, then I can start ministering. And then I thought, as soon as I get married, and then then after I got married, I'm sitting around and we're going, it's kind of boring, just the two of us, as soon as we have kids. And then as soon as I had kids, I'm thinking, as soon as they go away. (laughs) And then I get busy in my career, and I'm thinking, as soon as I get to this place, as soon as I get to this point, and then then I'm thinking, oh, well, as soon as I can retire. And then our church sells its property and we're going to build a brand new church out here. I'm not retiring anytime in the near future. (laughs) We're here for a while. So now it's down to when I die. (laughs) Maybe maybe there'll be some rest. Maybe, maybe, Maybe life will happen. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He has risen. Easter transforms our despondency into exhilaration. Easter transforms my sin into forgiveness. Jesus Jesus changes everything for me. And Easter validates everything that Jesus is. 
Yes, he was a great teacher, and yes, his morals make for a better life. But on Easter, Jesus gave me the ability to live that new life in him. The words of the Apostle Paul. If any person, if any individual is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. He is alive. And he is alive in us. When we trust him and we say, yes, I believe in Jesus. In that moment, I let Jesus come into my heart. I become alive. And everything has purpose and definition. And I'm no longer aimlessly walking through a dead world. I am alive and light lives in and through me and I have hope and I have dreams and I have an eternity. I don't need to look for the living amongst the dead because he is alive. He has risen, which means my life has purpose and meaning. I'll never forget the first time I definitively heard the call, the message, the, the inquisitive request for me to consider knowing God personally. Because the very first words I read in the pamphlet that I was given said simply, God loves you and has a purpose for your life. And that purpose was to know him. He forgave me and he changed my life. And Easter is the greatest celebration of that transformation. So where are we as we came here this morning? What will we carry? What expectations will we carry? And maybe it was all good. I mean, it was a great morning for me. I went retro, listened to a bunch of worship songs this morning that we sang at Easter sunrise services back in the 1980s and 1990s. Some of you weren't even born back then. I understand that. I had a great morning. That I pulled up and it was still dark and now it's light. What did we carry with us today? What were we looking for today that we can put aside and find in Jesus that transformation, that hope, that love. It would be just a few short days Jesus would start appearing to those disciples in a variety of places saying, I'm with you. And nothing's changed. His spirit is present right here today in this moment saying, I am with you. I am here. I love you. I care for you. And yes, I have a plan for your life. And it's a good plan. It's the plan that I prophesied it through the, the prophet Jeremiah years and generations before. It is that plan that says, my plans for you are plans of hope, not harm. And Easter verifies it. Easter verifies everything about the transformational work of Jesus in our lives. Today is a new day, but it can be a new life if I trust Jesus today.